One thing you notice pretty quickly about Levittown is how peaceful it is. One day earlier this year, I was walking on Butternut Lane, and I realized it had been a minute or so since I'd heard anything besides my own steps. A plane had gone overhead, a little while later a car went by, I was passing green lawns and American flags. The tallest structure around is a water tower next to a little park. The water tower says, Levittown. You've probably heard of Levittown, whether you live on Long Island or not. It's America's most famous suburb, partially because it was the first suburb that working people could afford, and partially because it so perfectly embodies the ideal of the suburbs. With Levittown, you could be middle class and still move out of the city and have a yard, birds chirping, quiet curving streets, all those good things. This is what Levittown is like today, and it's what it was like when it was built in the 1940s. That's around when Phyllis Cotter and her family moved into this same street, Butternut Lane. Tell me more about that. I mean, what was life like as a kid there? I mean, so there were no fences anywhere? No, no. No, we had, you know, big open lawns. And you could cut from one street to the next by cutting through somebody's yard. So nobody had fences up or anything like that. And would you play with a bunch of kids? Was there like a group that you played with? I think we're all basically around in that area about the same age. This is Phyllis talking to me over the phone from Atlanta. Her last name's now Atchison and she's 77. I called her to ask about moving into Levittown when she was little, and one image that stuck in her head was peach trees. One of the things Levittown's builders took seriously was landscaping, and Phyllis talked about those peach trees sort of wondrously, like they were a symbol of how much bounty there was in this brand new place. One hurricane uh, that we had, maybe 54, 55, and all the peaches got knocked off the trees, so everybody, you know, like all the kids in the neighborhood would... You know, in their their backyards, gathering the peaches to take to, you know, their mothers or grandmothers or whatever. But that always stuck out in my mind. What was the neighborhood like? Oh, nice neighborhood. You know, like I said, everybody friendly, taking care of their grass and, you know, hanging out to wash, talking to the neighbor, that kind of thing. I mean, typical, like, uh, father knows best kind of family in a sense. Um, I don't remember ugly things. Unfortunately, there was an ugly side to Levittown. There was an ugly side even though it was peaceful and had those nice lawns and open space. The ugly side was that in Levittown, black people were basically prevented from moving in, and the Cotters, Phyllis included, were black. The discrimination Phyllis and her family faced was really explicit. Leases included a whites-only clause. That was by the design of Levittown's creator, the guy who in fact became really famous for creating Levittown, Bill Levitt. Levitt was a developer who was not, who did not challenge um, existing practices of discrimination and in fact continued them in its development. This is Christopher Neat, a suburban expert at Hofstra University. I asked Neat about how racial discrimination in Levittown happens. Levitt was important because although he did not invent practices of discrimination like racially restrictive covenants and uh, discrimination by developers, I mean, developers had discriminated against non-white buyers before, but Levitt um, took both of these practices and kind of and and 
they became significant because of the scale of the communities that he created. On the one hand, Neat said, there was the act of discrimination coming from developer Bill Levitt and his whites-only leases. Then there was the role of the Federal Housing Administration, which insured mortgages. The mortgage piece was particularly important, kind of stopping the progress of integration, especially because the Federal Housing Administration at the time wouldn't underwrite uh, mortgages in, um, in areas that were integrated or majority-minority. This part is really important to the growth of the suburbs, too. Basically, banks were relying on the federal insurance to float their mortgages, and the federal government was encouraging them to stay away from integrated or minority areas. These mortgage policies were also the excuse Levitt used for the racially restrictive covenants. That's the, quote, whites-only language in the leases. From Levitt's perspective, he was just doing what the federal government was suggesting. Some people find that excuse kind of thin. One expert, for example, called Levitt a more-than-willing participant in the Federal Housing Administration's racial policies. And even after the Supreme Court declared racially restrictive covenants unenforceable in 1948, Levitt kept discriminating. And, you know, once racially restrictive covenants were declared unenforceable, um, he changed, you know, he and, his, and the people who sold his, his properties um, continued practices of discrimination. They continued to discriminate against non-white buyers. Enter Phyllis and the Cotters. The Cotters were one of a handful of black families who made it into Levittown in the early years by leasing and avoiding contact with Levitt himself. After their rental lease ran out, the company that owned the Levitt houses evicted them. Honestly, and truly, uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. I don't remember a whole lot about it other than, you know, like I said, they were uh, taking, us, taking our things out and piling it on the sidewalk. And uh, there were other, you know, there were people there, but um, I believe some, like I said, some neighbors took us in. The reason I called Phyllis Cotter in Atlanta to talk about Levittown was because of a Newsday Investigations project that's just been released. The investigation looked at the practices of real estate agents on Long Island. It did this by recruiting white, black, Hispanic, and Asian people to be what are called testers for Newsday. Basically, they went undercover as first-time home buyers in meetings with local real estate agents. Then, they secretly recorded what the agent said. This is very important, because the real estate agents often serve as gatekeepers to Long Island neighborhoods. And where people end up buying a home helps to increase or decrease integration. What the investigation found was some different treatment for potential home buyers on Long Island, who happened to be minorities. One of the places this happened was Levittown. The same Levittown with the green lawns and American flags and the peaches that fell that one hurricane when Phyllis was a kid. Here's an example. In one of the tests, a real estate agent provided a white tester with the opportunity to consider multiple Levittown listings. But in the black tester's case, even though he purposefully gave comparable background info and home requirements, the agent denied him Levittown listings. The subtext here is that Levittown remains overwhelmingly white. As of 2017, the population was just 1.4% black. This is how separate living can continue even today, in 2019, and it starts with the baseline segregation that was established by the federal government and Bill Levitt.
This podcast is about how Long Island ended up with that early and influential practice of separate living in Levittown. Levitt was sort of an American hero for building so much so quickly, but he also kept non-white residents out. Yet on the local level, nobody stopped him from discriminating. That included Newsday, where we're recording this podcast. In 2019, you've got Newsday coming out with this big investigation on real estate agent practices. But back in 1947, Newsday was actually key to getting Levittown off the ground, to the point of overlooking the discrimination of black people looking to buy homes. Some of that overlooking was done in the open, in Newsday editorials, like one editorial that said that a racial issue in Levittown, quote, did not exist. That's the subject of our podcast. Clearly back in the 40s and 50s, there were people like Phyllis Cotter and her family who just wanted a peaceful and quiet place to live. That's why they came to Levittown. So why did Newsday's editorial board basically turn a blind eye to their plight and to Levittown's segregation? And what are the effects of that early segregation today? I'm Mark Chisano, your narrator slash host. I'm a member of the editorial board, and this is a Newsday Opinion podcast. Long Island, New York, America's fastest growing community. Home, place of business, playground for the millions who live in Nassau and Suffolk counties. But Long Island wasn't always like this. Not many years ago, it was a quiet, semi-rural community, just a place where things were going to happen. And this is our story. This is a promotional video for Long Island from the 1960s, presented by Newsday. Newsday sort of grew up with Long Island. Up until right before the paper was founded in 1940, Nassau County was full of potato farms and small villages. New York City was booming and expanding over to the west, but Long Island's growth was just getting started. Cars helped pick up the pace, and Nassau County nearly tripled in population between 1920 and 1930, but the region lacked an identity. Its governments were scattered, There wasn't much beyond beaches that everyone on the island shared, and Newsday tried to change that. It wasn't a very big operation, and some of us didn't know too much about putting out a newspaper. But we had our share of pros on the team. Ms. Patterson set our objectives. That's Alicia Patterson, Newsday's founder. Patterson came from a famous newspaper family, but was severely underestimated by her family and her peers, including the major New York City papers who ignored pretty much all of Long Island. That turned out to be a big mistake. World War II changed the face of Long Island. It had brought over 100,000 defense workers to the area, and the end of the fighting overseas released millions of GIs to fight at home for some place to live. On Long Island, an imaginative building concern, Levitt and Sons, had an idea about this problem. By the time this video came out in 1964, Nearly everyone knew who the builders Levitt and Sons were, thanks to their developments, their Levittowns. Bill Levitt was the main figure. Bill was actually the front man of the operation going back to the early 1930s. Um, you know, the, you, the first time that you see the Levitts really start to make a big splash in publicity is the Rockville Center, Strathmore Homes. This is Joshua Ruff, a curator from the Long Island Museum, who worked on a Levittown exhibit a few years ago. By 1932-33, they're already in the pages of Architectural Forum, New York Times, other newspapers, and there's a lot of publications that are enamored by 
this very telegenic personality, this, uh, you know, uh, the photographs of Bill Levitt from the 1930s, he was a good-looking man, um, he was extremely well-spoken, and he recognized that he did not necessarily need to be the master of every single aspect of the operation as much as he had to be the gifted salesman for the process. Levitt was the salesman and the guy who made decisions. He barred Jews from buying in one early project, even though his grandfather had been a rabbi. It was just business for him. You don't want to scare off buyers. This was his attitude with black residents, too. Levitt perfected the art of mass construction through a government contract building Virginia rental homes for naval officers during World War II. This became the formula for his masterpiece, Long Island's Levittown. You had 16 million people coming back from wartime, uh, the end of World War II, uh, an instantaneous housing crisis, a housing crisis that had been felt for a few years, in fact, um, but was especially felt now that you have all of these returning veterans looking for homes, uh, the housing stop that had occurred th in, throughout the Great Depression for um, people that were on the lower end of the middle class. And you have, especially in the New York metropolitan area, you have a tremendous increasing and growing need for people to settle down and uh, begin to, to buy into their, their goal for the, for the American dream. This was a turning point for American housing. The housing crisis had gotten worse during the Depression, and Congress was considering a bunch of options to fix that. That could have meant more promotion of public housing on the one hand, or suburbs on the other. And Congress went with suburbs. Levitt's genius was to see the suburban era dawning. But Newsday saw potential in the suburbs, too. The war hadn't even ended yet, and Newsday was already running a series of stories on low-cost homes for returning veterans. Here's that promotional video again. There was nothing to rent in those days. The veterans were doubled up in attics and cellars. Most of them couldn't afford to buy homes, so rental homes were a necessity. Basically, Newsday begins beating the drum for more housing. For Levittown, one way it beat the drum was by agreeing with Levitt that the new buildings didn't need basements. Our sources told us that the Hempstead Town Board might block the project because of an archaic building code requiring basements. So Newsday jumped into the fight on the side of the veterans. Our job was to campaign for changing the local building code so the Levitt homes could be constructed. We dug into the facts we found there was nothing technically wrong with this new type of construction. The main battle was to be fought on May 27th, the day the town board met to decide whether to change the code. Newsday fixated on this meeting, including on its editorial page, encouraging, quote, everybody in Nassau and Suffolk who can get there to show up. Newsday's reporter at the meeting was a woman named Bernie Fisher, who later went by Herbie Wheeler. This is an interview with Herbie Wheeler at Newsday on July 30th, 1987. That voice you hear is Bob Keeler. He's Newsday's resident historian and author of a book about the paper, and his tapes from that project are still in Newsday's archives. We'll play a little of them when he and another reporter named Arnie Abrams are interviewing Bernie Fisher slash Herbie Wheeler, who was our correspondent at that big Levittown meeting. Arnie Abrams is participating in the interview for purposes of the 40th anniversary Levittown series that's going to run in October. Is, uh, I thought we had had stories 
about the uh, opposition to the uh, uh, basementless home because that was the big cry that it was going to... About the opposition. Fisher says she was a young 20-something when she was assigned to cover the meeting. She'd been sort of a disbeliever of Levitt as a house salesman. She thought he was just a businessman, not some sort of hero for people without homes. But then she showed up at that meeting. Here's Fisher. I was uh, like almost stunned at the response of this because, you know, I was young. I was single. I didn't, what the hell did I know about, uh, you know, being uh, without a home and babies and everything and living in with your in-laws. And I, I just, I guess I just couldn't believe that people were desperate for uh, housing. And so when this mob showed up, and of course, not unruly, and not, not very demonstrative. I mean, they were just like, a lot of them were just standing there quietly and others, but uh, some of them spoke up, of course, during the course of the meeting, but they were just there. And yeah. they were obviously, I find, I actually I said to Arnie, I found it very moving because uh, these people obviously were, uh, uh, I don't know, it sounds a little dramatic to say their lives were at stake, but it was, uh, I guess, uh, in a sense, kind of true. So two things seem to be true. People were really invested in the need for housing. And clearly, the paper's campaign to get people to pay attention paid off. Uh, Do you think, would you estimate what would be able to be seated then? I, don't, I would say a couple of hundred. Okay, no, but it was well overflowing that. Oh, yeah, they were lined around the walls and standing up on the... And the things in the back, and the the, uh, the town board meeting room was on the second floor. And mm-hmm. There was rather a large hallway outside with marble floors and whatever, and or whatever the hall was, and then the big stairway down, wrapped around down to the ground floor, mm-hmm. and that was just packed solid. Uh, and at that time, of course, there was no such thing as uh, microphones, so the people outside could hear what was going on. Yeah. These people were just waiting for the word. At the end of the interview, Arnie Abrams pipes up. Abrams had been working on a Levittown anniversary story and was basically trying to retrace the story of that meeting. However, for your information, everybody that I have interviewed on this, in terms of the early, the very first Levittown, right. all said that they found out about it from Newsday. Yeah. Uh, they all were responding either to Newsday stories, Newsday editorials, or ads that Levitt was actually placing in the paper. Mm-hmm. Even the people, and I spoke to people who, you know, came out from Brooklyn, they had either had been sent the paper, right. or in some cases the husband was working out here and brought the paper home. And in several instances, they went, they went out to the office and put in the application without ever seeing it. Oh, yeah. Physically. They, just, they right. just saw what, it, what was written about it, and they said, this is for us. Yeah. Yeah. And the first yeah. time they ever saw the house was the day they moved in. <laughs> Literally. This is for us, the homebuyer said, and they were trusting Newsday to guide them. Newsday even put it in that promotional video. None of us will ever forget that meeting. Thousands of veterans answered Newsday's call. They jammed the town hall, ready to stay until they got the decision they wanted. The long-awaited battle was over in 20 minutes. The code was revised, clearing the way to build Levittown. Levittown set off the explosive post-war growth of Long Island. It was the beginning of the island's tremendous building boom. 
homes ranging from $10,000 to $100,000. Getting those building restrictions changed brought a great influx of people. More business came to the island, and this in turn brought more people. Thus began a cycle that never has ended. Happy ending, right? Newsday's efforts paid off, and Levittown got built. But there were problems beneath the surface. Here's a letter to the editor from October 1947. It uses the name Island Trees, the original name for much of the area covered by the Levittown rentals. The letter goes like this. In Island Trees, the snobs and bigots have gotten in their dirty work. It is a pity, but not surprising, that non-white veterans are not allowed to rent at Island Trees. But further, they are not even allowed on the development in any capacity except as domestics. This is Michael Dobie. He's an editorial writer and columnist for Newsday here in the present, and also my colleague on the editorial board. He'll be joining us for some of the episodes in this series. It's not exactly shocking that someone would write a letter like this. Lots of places around the country had racial exclusionary clauses, and segregation was aided by federal policies. But the strange thing is that two days later, Newsday publishes a correction. The correction says that the Levittown letter was published, quote, inadvertently. It says that the letter was pulled when fact-checking found, quote, four misstatements of fact. But there's something missing in the correction. The main complaint in the original letter, that non-white people are not allowed to rent in Levittown. And, well, that seems to be true. It's in leases that you can see for yourself in the Levittown Library's historical records. They say, quote, the tenant agrees not to permit the premises to be used or occupied by any person other than members of the Caucasian race. About that, the editorial page says not a word. Maybe the editorial board just thought it was business as usual. A couple years go by. While people all around the country are protesting segregation in the new suburbs, Bill Levitt continues discriminating, and almost nobody who's not white makes it into Levittown. Then, in 1949, another editorial. It's basically a big pat on the back for Levitt, applauding him for planning to expand his housing empire to Israel. It reads like this. Michael, if you could read over here. In view of this good work, it is all the more lamentable that the Levitts have currently been under attack by local troublemakers. Organizations which appear to be either communist-dominated or communist-inspired have been attempting to raise a racial issue at Levittown. And then, can you read the next bit? The issue did not exist until it was fostered by people not immediately affected by it. So what, what do you make of that, ultimately? Well, the editorial stance, which essentially is nothing to see here, clearly did not reflect reality. And then the editorial ends like this. In this country, it is the individual's prerogative, not the state's, to decide where he will live. America will eventually beat bigotry with evolution, but we will never do it with revolution. This apparently led to some letters to the editor. A few days later, another editorial tries to clarify Newsday's official position with a little shift of focus. It says that if Newsday owned Levittown, the paper wouldn't have a Caucasians-only clause. Even still, the editorial argues that this whole issue was really commie outsiders making a mess. Newsday continues to run arguments like this into the 50s. Slow down on the whole racial progress thing. Easy does it. Stay away from the communists. Caution and moderation. To be fair, in other editorials, Newsday was more sensitive to racial issues, like in an August 1948 piece that says this. The discrimination we practice here isn't as open as that of the Southern Jim Crow laws. 
because it is hypocritical, it's all the more vicious. But where racial issues in Levittown were concerned, Newsday fumbled. In 1957, for the 10th anniversary of Levittown, with Levitt still discriminating in his business practices, a Newsday editorial celebrates the project and makes no mention of the racial clauses at all. Levitt himself is long dead, so I reached out to Levitt's son Jim to talk about the racial clauses for his dad's homes. He didn't want to talk for this podcast, but in an email he wrote, quote, As far as I know, this was a business decision only, unquote. The only here is in all caps. The email continues like this, quote, Again, I was a kid and not privy to any of this at the time. Newsday described the clauses this way too for a long time, focusing more on the good news about people getting houses than who was left out. Newspapers and politicians and businesses around the country made similar judgments. Newsday wasn't alone, and Levittown wasn't alone. But nobody was pushing and rooting for Levittown as granularly as Newsday's editorial page was. And Levittown wasn't just any other suburb. It was massive, and it was copied, and the Levitt philosophy spread. So why did the editorial board blink? And what happened to the people of Levittown when it did? That's the subject of the rest of this podcast. 